Uh, actually, I'm, I'm entering my, uh, my, I'm turning 40 this year, so uh, kind of a landmark year for me. It's been a good year so far. Uh, it made me reflect, though, a little bit on my, you know, my teenage years. Um, I, I realized that I wanted, uh, my life was marked by wanting circumstances to change. I wanted to, to get a job so I could make some money, so I could uh, change my clothes or change my social situation. I wanted a girlfriend or a new girlfriend or however that someone to love you. Um, you know, and as I got in my 20s, I realized I wanted everybody else to change, not just circumstance. I wanted people to change. I got married in my 20s. I wanted my wife to change. I thought that's what, you know, that's how, what would make our marriage better. I wanted my boss to change. I wanted the people that I worked with to change. The, uh, the cold, hard reality as I got in my 30s was I realized I was the one that needed to change. And uh, probably any of you who are in your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, you realize now, I think that's, that's, the, that's the growing reality, is that I realize that what needs to happen in my life, not just whoever I work for, work with, or married to, or my children, that I need to actually change. And I don't know about you, but that's just a difficult thing to come to grips with, to realize that there's desires I have of the person that I want to be, and yet, for whatever reason, for many reasons, I can't quite make it there. And I remember reading um, something at the beginning of a book by John Orberg called The Life You've Always Wanted. It's a bit of a longer quote, but let me read it for you because it put a finger, it put, it's, he put his finger on it, uh, it was what I was feeling. He says this, I'm disappointed with myself. I'm disappointed not so much with particular things I have done as with aspects of who I have become. I have a nagging sense that all is not as it should be. Some of this disappointment is trivial. I wouldn't have minded getting a more muscular physique. I can't do basic home repairs. So far, I haven't shown much financial wizardry. Some of this disappointment is neurotic. Sometimes I'm too concerned about what others think about me, even people I don't know. Some of this disappointment, I know, is worse than trivial. It is simply the sour fruit of self-absorption. I attend a high school reunion and can't choke back the desire to stand out by looking more attractive or having achieved more impressive accomplishments than my classmates. I speak to someone with whom I want to be charming and my words come out awkward and pedestrian. I am disappointed with my ordinariness. But some of this disappointment in myself runs deeper. When I look in on my children as they sleep at night, I think of the kind of father I want to be. I want to create moments of magic. I want them to remember laughing until the tears flow. I want to read to them and make the books come alive so they love to read. I want to have slow, sweet talks with them as they're getting ready to close their eyes. I want to sing them awake in the morning. I want to chase fireflies with them, teach them to play tennis, have food fights, and hold them and pray for them in a way that makes them feel cherished. I look in on them as they sleep at night and I remember how the day really went. I remember how they were trapped in a fight over checkers and I walked out of the room because I didn't want to spend the energy needed to teach them how to resolve conflict. I remember how my daughter spilled cherry punch at dinner and I yelled at her about being careful as if she'd revealed some deep character flaw. I yelled at her even though I spill things all the time and no one yells at me. I yelled at her to tell the truth simply because I'm big and she's little and I can get away with it. And then I saw the look of hurt and confusion in her eyes, and I knew there was a tiny wound on her heart that I had put there, and I wished I could have taken those 60 seconds back. I remember how at night I didn't have slow, sweet talks, but merely rushed the children to bed so I could have more time to myself. I'm disappointed. And it's not just my life as a father. I'm disappointed also for my life as a husband, friend, neighbor, and human being in general. I think of the day I was born when I carried the gift of promise, the gift given to all babies. I think of that little baby and what might have been, the ways I might have developed mind and body and spirit, the thoughts I might have had, the joy I might have created. I'm disappointed that I still love God so little and sin so much. 
I always had the idea as a child that adults were pretty much the people they wanted to be. Yet the truth is, I'm embarrassingly sinful. I'm capable of dismaying amounts of jealousy if someone succeeds more visibly than I do. I'm disappointed at my capacity to be small and petty. I cannot pray for very long without my mind drifting into fantasy of angry revenge over some past slight I thought I had long since forgiven or some grandiose fantasy of achievement. I can convince people I'm busy and productive and yet waste large amounts of time watching television. These are just some of the disappointments. I have other ones, darker ones, that I'm not ready to commit to paper. The truth is, even to write these words is a little misleading because it makes me sound more sensitive to my fallenness than I really am. Sometimes, although I'm aware of how much I fall short, it doesn't even bother me very much, and I'm disappointed at my lack of disappointment. I think if you're a human being, in some shape or form, you resonate with those expressions. That we want more for ourselves. We want to be more than we are. And for some of us, that leads us to try harder as we grow a little bit more honest with the fact that we are not who we want to be. Some of us, it makes us try harder. We drive harder, try to be better, do better, get better, live better, act better, think better. Or perhaps some of us have given up and we go to the other end of the spectrum or maybe if my life is any indication, we are sort of a manic swinging between trying harder and giving up. And thinking, well, I can't do this. I can't forget changing anybody else. I can't even change myself. And yet, something inside us won't let go of the desire to change. Something inside us won't let go to want to be more than we are. And in fact, even in our relationships, sometimes we realize, well, I'm trying to change other people, but I've realized actually deep down, if I don't want other people to change, I don't really love them. Because if I don't want them to be more than they are, if I don't want them to be free from their addictions or from their thought patterns that are destructive or the ways that they hurt or sabotage relationships, then that means I don't really care about them. So this isn't about me simply trying to control them. This is about a desire for change that I have for those that I love and for myself. And so what do we do? Well, the scriptures are called, many of us call it, some of you even have maybe on the front of your Bible, the Good News Bible. They are good news. It is gospel the good news that God actually loves us exactly as we are and yet refuses to leave us as we are. That's good news. That we are loved and accepted just as we are and yet the only one who has the power to change us has determined that he will change us. The scriptures actually tell us that change in our lives is far more complex than we would like to admit. That we are not just mistakers in need of correction, as Andy Stanley says, or little things that need to be tweaked, just some finer points edged out. But that actually what is wrong with our lives is this thing called sin. And in the modern culture, sin is not a very positive word, and so we don't like to talk about it. But as Timothy Keller says in his book, Reason for God, sin is actually a very hopeful word. Because it's the answer to the question that every one of us have, no matter what your faith background or journey or where you are in your spiritual life. It is the answer to the question, what is wrong with the world? And every one of us has that. And not just, what's wrong with the world out there? But what's wrong with the world in here? Why can I not? change? Why cannot be the one that I want to be, that I long to be, that I feel I'm supposed to be? It's sin. And if there is a diagnosis, which is what sin is, this is a hopeful thing because there is a cure. If there's a diagnosis and the scriptures actually put our finger on it, you're not just a mistake or in need of correction. What do we call something that you knew was wrong that you planned to do and did it anyway? That's not a mistake. That's something entirely different. 
And the scriptures actually tell us it's because there's a systemic issue with us. We were made beautiful, and yet there is brokenness within us. There is, as one of my professors at school says, a systemic blood poisoning within us that is corrupting all that we want to do and want to be. The scriptures tell us that's sin, and it's a hopeful word because it is a diagnosis, and then it tells us that God himself came into this world because he loves us exactly as we are, but he refuses to leave us as we are. And the New Testament, which is the story of Jesus in the first four books of the New Testament, which are the biographies of Jesus, and then all the letters after it, which explain what just happened in this Jesus, this Christ event that has now changed forever history, that has changed you and I. It says these two things over and over again. That God loves us exactly as we are, and yet he refuses to leave us as we are. You've been studying through one of those such letters, the book of Colossians, and it describes this whole issue of change and puts its finger on us and say, how do we actually do it? And so I want, if you would turn to your Bibles this morning, in Colossians chapter 3. And how do we truly change? And the first thing the Apostle Paul says as he writes is that it is a change of mind that is necessary first. Some of these verses you read last week with Pastor Lucas, but I'm going to read them again. And Paul is writing to this church, and remember most of these letters were to new Christians as they were working this through, and doubtless they had come to this place where they were wrestling with this dynamic, this hopeful good news in Jesus Christ, and yet somehow not being able to change or become the people they want to be. And here's what the Apostle Paul writes. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of its creator." The Apostle Paul explains to the church that in this whole matter of change, you need to change your mind about this. You are not just someone who needs some minor tweaks. You needed a miracle. And it happened. It wasn't just that you could somehow self-improve, that there were some little things that needed to be made better or trying harder. He said, you needed to die. It was nothing short of death and rebirth. And he said the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was symbolic for you in the sense of saying the only way that you were going to change was if God did a miracle in your life. You had old ways of thinking, old ways of living, old ways of acting, and it needed to die. That person, that life needed to be put to death, buried in the ground. It's a miracle. You have to change your mind. Remember, change happens first through a miracle of God in your life. Nobody can make it happen for you except God. And if God did it, he did it because he loved you. And it was a miracle and was something you couldn't make happen. He reminded them of that. Remember, you died. Now, evidently, 
some of the behaviors that were coming on in their lives, in their lives as Christians in the church. And he listed a bunch of those. Sexual immorality, lust, impurity, greed, anger, rage, malice, slander. They were still acting and living on some of those old ways. And Paul said to them, remember, change your mind. You died to those things. Those are old ways of living. They don't belong to you anymore. That's not how you're called to live. It's as if you are saying, digging up the old body that has died and putting back on the clothes that were buried when you died with Christ. This stuff, it doesn't belong to you. I remember in, uh, in 1988, when I graduated university, I had the chance to travel through Europe with some friends from school. And I'll admit, at the time, I was not a soccer fan. I thought soccer was a ridiculous game. Uh, I thought that, you know, any, any uh, sport where you have to bring the stretcher out several times in a game and guys who leave on the stretcher come back out, like they should put advertising on it for the amount of times it appears in a game. And I grew up watching hockey. If a stretcher comes out in a hockey game, that guy's not coming back in the game. These guys would walk off, you know, and somebody would spray something on their knee, and they're back out in the next half. So I thought it was a bit silly. But I, I got, I drank the Kool-Aid. I went to Europe. It was, during the, uh, it was during the 1998 World Cup, and France was hosting. And so every little city that we went to, we stopped, and whatever pub or hostel or wherever we were staying, of course, they were watching the game. Now, by the time we got to, we had been through um, kind of France already, the host nation, and um, Spain, and then Italy, and then Greece, and then up to uh, Austria, and then we were in the Czech Republic, and we were watching the semifinals. And France beat Croatia in the semifinals, which meant the host nation was going to be in the finals. So we thought, we, you know, this is once in a lifetime. So we had a couple of tickets left on our Eurorail. We had no place to stay in Paris because it was going to be so expensive. We were on a $10 a day kind of hotel budget. So we, we took the train to Munich. We ditched our bags there. We took our toothbrush and whatever clothes we were wearing, and we went to Paris, which is another day train ride. And we got there at 9 in the morning. They were showing the game on the, on the big screen in, in, the, in kind of the main uh, square in Paris on a, on a big video screen. And around noon, we walked over just to see where it was. The game was starting at 9 at night. And there was already a few thousand people there. So we grabbed a big baguette and a block of cheese and said, okay, we're not, we're not leaving. By 5 o'clock, everybody was like this. And the game hadn't started. It was four more hours. And if, if any of you are soccer fans, you know you follow that, that game. They were playing Brazil. Brazil was the juggernaut. There was no way they were going to win. And a few minutes after 9, I think it was Zidane, scored the opening goal for France. And the whole, we were literally lifted off our feet by the crowd. And we had French flags painted on us as if we were sort of patriotic. And we had our good Canadian flags on us as well. And then they won, and we ran the streets with, as if we were Frenchmen and had been our whole lives. We ran up and down the Champs-Élysées and sweaty and everything. We had no place to stay. Went to the train station at five in the morning, slept on the floor with our bags kind of around us like this, took the next train back to Munich. Now, it was amazing. Now, when we got to Munich, we stunk. We had been gone for four days, three or four days, had not showered, had been running around, uh, hadn't slept anywhere decent. I think we had brushed our teeth once. And in this hostel we were in, you could uh, put quarters in the shower, right? So it, this was like a, a 10-quarter shower. And by the time we were finished, you felt so clean. I've never felt so clean in my life. Now imagine I'd walked out of that and took the clothes that I was wearing and put them back on. Ooh, see? Ugh. Disgusting. We didn't do that, okay? We burned those, those clothes. <laughs> but you see, that's what Paul is saying to them. You have been washed clean. You are a new person. You died to an old way of living. Why are you going to put on those disgusting clothes that don't fit you anymore, that stink 
of your old life and your old way. He was appealing to them to remember the miracle that had happened in their life and say, you have to think about this. This isn't about just trying to do better or get better. This stuff does not belong to you anymore. They are dead man's clothes, and they stink. And so you need to give them the Tony Soprano. You're dead to me, right? This old way of behavior you need to look at and say, this is not me at all. I died to this. I may be tempted or struggling with this, but Paul says this has nothing to do with your new life in Christ. That was your old way. It must die. Put it to death. Change your mind. It doesn't belong to you anymore. He began with the change of mind, but then he goes on. You got to change your clothes too. Verse 12, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, Humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Don't just change your mind and say this old way doesn't belong to me, but now change your clothes. You need to put on something else. And he actually says, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, gentleness, humility. Forgive each other as the Lord forgave you. And above all, put on love, which binds them together. What do you notice about all of these ways and behaviors that the Apostle Paul is encouraging them to put on and live and act like? They're all relational. They all have to do with our relationships. See, it's easy to stay pure and not be a sinner, sort of, by yourself. It's all these other people that we're surrounded by that make us sin. We're teaching our, um, our kids the Lord's Prayer, and my youngest one, he's five. So we've been saying it every night. And then there was something on the table, it was a gift bag for somebody else, and he was so enamored with it one day, and he kept looking at it, and then the next time I come in the room, he'd open the gift bag, and then I laughed, and I said, Gideon, you've got to stop doing that, you can't touch it anymore. And then I came back, and he had taken something else, and I said, Gideon, are you kidding me? Like, how come you can't? He's like, he's lying on the couch, he's like, oh, I was led into temptation. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty funny. But, you know, sin would be easy if we weren't surrounded by all these things that are tempting us all the time. Paul is actually telling us, listen, relationships are the soil which will, first of all, expose the fact that you are sinful. And yet, they are a gift because they are the soil in which God is going to change you. Do you understand that? Any of you that are married know this. You thought you were a pretty good person until you got married. (laughs) What's wrong with this person who keeps giving you all this negative feedback? Until somebody told you, ah, that that spouse that you have, they are a mirror. Oh. Everybody else just keeps thinking, there's something wrong with that person, so I'll move on to the next person, or I wish I could move on to the next person if it was socially acceptable or religiously acceptable, but I can't. But the scriptures actually tell us that relationships bring out the opportunity for God to expose our sin. All of these things that Paul says to clothe us with are the things that are tested when we come into relationship, not only in marriage, but in parenting, and of course, in the body of Christ, and that's who he's talking to. If you want to change, you've come to the right place. 
If you want to change, if God, if you have said, oh, God, free me from this addiction, change me from this kind of pattern behavior, if you've ever prayed a prayer like that, the body of Christ, the church, is his answer to that prayer. Because when you are in relationship with each other, and I don't mean just sharing a seat next to each other on Sunday morning, although Sunday, you know, is a huge part of our worship life together. But as we get into community with one another, as we share life together, as we work side by side, as we rub up against each other, suddenly the opportunity for patience will come up. And how, does, how, does, how can you say you're patient? The only way you can say that you're patient is if Out of 100 opportunities you have to be impatient, you are patient. About 90 of them, right? If you're 50-50, if half the time you lose it and the other half you kind of manage to bite your tongue, can you really say you're patient? Compassion. How else will we have the opportunity to show compassion, to put on compassion, unless we are faced with someone who is in such dire straits, who is in need, perhaps they have offended us. And instead of judgment, we have an opportunity to show compassion. Can we say we're compassionate unless regularly we are showing them compassion when we have the opportunity to turn away, either to not meet a need or to not forgive? He says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. How did the Lord forgive you? Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Do you know what struck me this year about that passage? What does that say? It says the Lord keeps no record of wrongs. Every morning, God gets up, gives you the sun, gives you this day and says, today is a day full of my new mercies. I'm not looking at the way you acted yesterday. I'm not looking at your sins. I'm not counting them against you. Today is a new day. You have a fresh start, a new set of mercies. That's how the Lord forgives us. And so how are we doing with that in community? Only in community where someone is wronging you do you have the opportunity to not keep a record of wrongs. If you don't keep record of wrongs to people that are always nice to you, that doesn't count. That's something else. That's God's blessing in your life. Hang on to that person. Don't let them go. Only when someone is wronging you, when you are coming up against each other, there is conflict, there is sparks, and there is an opportunity for you to wake up the next day and say, I remember what you did to me. I remember what you did last week. I remember what you did yesterday. I remember what you did last year. No, Paul says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. His mercies are new every morning. Only in community is all of this exposed, friends. In relationships where we're too close to be able to run away or push away, where people start to really see us for who we are and we start to see others for who they really are. Community is the soil of transformation. So don't run away. Don't push away. Don't step away. Maybe you're feeling that in your marriage. Or in parenting. And maybe you've literally tried to step away. Or maybe you know you can't because that's just socially unacceptable. But in your heart, you've distanced yourself from that person. Don't. This is the place of transformation. That God has brought someone into your life to sharpen you and expose you. Even if they are mistreating you. Do you see all of these things that he lists? Look at these words in chapter 3. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You do not need anyone else to do anything for you to display those. You do not need someone to treat you kindly to show forgiveness. In fact, you need them to wrong you in order for you to be able to show forgiveness. You do not need people to need nothing from you in order to show compassion. In fact, you need someone who comes to you empty-handed 
Maybe financially or maybe emotionally they have nothing to give you and they're draining you and you're like, oh my gosh, like you're sucking all the life out of me. That's actually what you need them to do so you can show them compassion. Do you see? So you have everybody you need in your life right now <laughs> to be able to clothe yourself with these things. It's a change of mind. I, those things are dead to me, those old ways. And we can quickly look at that list like sexual immorality and lust and impurity. And by the way, if you're in any, any of that kind of behavior and you haven't, you need to know that's, that doesn't belong to you. But we can quickly look over that and say that's not me. But then what's in the rest of the list? Slander. Anger. Rage. And we can add to all that stuff, bitterness, all of these relational things. Those things don't belong to you. Instead, put on, in fact, the relationships that are causing you, giving you an opportunity to be bitter, to be unforgiving, to be slanderous, are actually the ones that God has given you as a blessing in your life to show compassion, kindness, forgiveness, humility, gentleness. So you're right where you need to be to change. You ever realize that this is God's answer to the prayer that you have prayed, oh God, change me. See, community is the place where we discover we aren't these things, even though we thought we were a pretty good person. Community is the place where we discover I'm actually quick to anger. I'm not slow to anger. Community is the place where we realize, you know what, I get tired of helping other people. I'm not very compassionate. I run out of compassion. The first two in line, okay, but by three or four, it's like, guys, I'm done. I can't give anymore. Community is the place that we realize that kindness, when we have the opportunity to show kindness to someone who is weak, kindness is a response to someone who is weak. That instead of turning away and saying, it's not my problem, or criticizing them for it, kindness says, let me help you when you are down. Even though you're kind of hurting me as you're going down. Let me help you. Community is the place we realize we are not these things, but there is also the place we realize God has given these people into our lives to shape us into the image of his son. To answer the prayer that we have prayed, oh God, change me. This is impossible, is it not? To display these things over and over. Essentially what the Apostle Paul is saying though, friends, is to put on Christ. To be a Christian is to be a little Christ. To clothe yourself with Christ Jesus is the one as we read the Gospels, right? If you want to know what, it, what would it look like for some human being to actually live like this, look at Jesus. What would it look like for a human being to actually live fully empowered by the Spirit of God, fully motivated by obedience to God, fully living out the joy that comes from having the Spirit fill him, the fruit of the Spirit born out in his life? Look at Jesus. Jesus is the one who is compassionate, kind, slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving. In a sense, we are clothing ourselves with Christ. And this is this verse in Colossians earlier, it says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus is not some example that's way ahead and down in the road for us, and it's nice to look at him for once in a while, but gosh, we wish we could be a little bit closer to him. He's not just an example. If he's just an example, this is not good news or gospel at all. He is in you. The hope of glory in you. The hope of compassion and kindness and forgiveness and love and gentleness is in you through Christ. Amen? This is not something we have to strive harder or do better and feel terrible about ourselves. We need to say, oh, Jesus, you are in me. The hope of glory. I died to an old way of living where you were not in me and I was empty and I had nothing to give. 
but now I live and you live in me. And so this is the hope that I have. And so here's what I want to end with this morning is just to ask two questions and give you a prayer. First question you may need to ask, and and this may be to someone who's close to you. Be honest with me. Are my clothes dirty? In other words, hey, do I stink? Sometimes you may not know what has been happening in your lives. We're not sometimes honest enough or aware enough to see our behavior. So you may need to ask somebody that's close to you. If you're married, the first person to ask your spouse, hey, have you seen any kind of old, kind of dirty clothes behavior in my life? Have you seen bitterness? Have I been slow to anger or quick to anger lately? And and some of you are smiling because you don't even need to ask. You already know the answer. You don't want to (laughs) ask. Maybe they were telling you without you asking the question already. Ask somebody close to you. Hey, have I been wearing some clothes that don't belong to me as a Christian? How have I been acting in this relationship? Be brave. Ask the question. Ask a friend. Ask a family member, ask a spouse, ask a close coworker, maybe even ask your boss if you're really courageous. <laughs> Secondly, you may ask this, in which relationship do I need to change my clothes? Maybe there's one relationship in particular. Maybe it's with a young child or maybe it's with an, an adult child. Maybe it's with a parent, maybe it's with an in-law, maybe it's with a spouse, maybe it's with a boss, maybe it's with a coworker. There's one relationship in particular that you know is just really getting you right now. And perhaps this morning the Spirit of God is shifting and saying this isn't about them. This is about you. No matter what they do, here's what I want you to do. What relationship is coming to mind that I, that I need to make a change of clothes in where I have not been putting on kindness, compassion, humility, gentleness. I have not been forgiving. I have been keeping a record of wrongs. Every day I wake up and I'm rehearsing in my mind the things that that person has done to me yesterday or the day before, and so bitterness and anger is growing. I have not been forgiving like the Lord has forgiven me in this relationship, and maybe there's one in particular you know it's right in your heart right now. So I'll give you a prayer to pray. Jesus, Help me put on today, whatever it is. Is it forgiveness that you need? Is it compassion that you need? Is it kindness that you need? This is how we should read the Gospels, right? When we read the life of Jesus, to say, I want that, I want that, I want that. We see Jesus, all the ways he was reacting to people who were hurting him or people who needed stuff from him or people who misunderstood him, people who wrongly accused him and how he reacted. And we say, Jesus, help me, you have that. I know that's you, put that on me. Clothe me in that Christ. A daily prayer, Jesus, help me put on this today. See, perhaps you came in today and you've been struggling with a particular relationship in your life. And you've been feeling hopeless about it. Because you think, well, these circumstances aren't changing. Or this person isn't changing. Or my work environment isn't changing. Or my home isn't changing. And you have had hopelessness in your heart. My prayer, my hope is that today actually you have grasped a glimpse of hope. That if those circumstances never change, if that boss never changes, if that coworker never changes, if that spouse never changes, if that child never changes, if that friend never changes, if that family member never changes, you can still experience dramatic, miraculous change in that relationship. Why? Because you can change. 
Because God has purpose to change you. And if you change, have a new smell on you, new clothes. You know that new car smell? When you walk into a house that's been freshly cleaned or new clothes, whatever it is, you can be, as the scriptures say, the fragrance of Jesus in that relationship. No matter how stinky you think it is, maybe this morning, God has said to you, don't lose hope, don't lose heart. No matter what they do, no matter what happens out there, you can change. I have purposed to change you. So let me pray for you. Jesus, we thank you that you are in us. That you who are the embodiment of love, compassion, kindness, gentleness, forgiveness, That even as we want to clothe ourselves with those, we realize you are in us. The spirit of Christ is alive in us. And that's why Paul says, this is the hope of glory, what we long for. And so I pray for every longing heart that's here this morning to say, we want to be more than we are. We want to see those old patterns, addictions, and habits change. God, come and do a miracle in our relationships. Even this morning as we have prayed, Jesus, help me put on kindness, compassion, gentleness, humility, forgiveness. We are hopeless without you. But with you, all things are possible, and that is what we pray. And so I pray for every heart that has turned to you this morning. I pray for those that are even resisting this, God, that are just so frustrated with the relationships that they've been in, perhaps in this church or in their marriage or in their homes or whatever it is, that your perfect love would melt away bitterness and frustration and hurt that you would release us to be little Christs to one another. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit we pray. Amen.